From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Almost 18 years ago, Mercedes Austin started making ceramic tiles in her small apartment. She slept right next to her kiln. A hobby became a business. It's grown from a small studio to a 15,000 square foot manufacturing center in Minneapolis. Today, Mercury Mosaics produces hand-cut tiles on a large scale, 125 colors, 49 shapes, custom orders, direct to consumer, and B2B. Some of Mercury Mosaic's large clients include Room and Board, P.F. Chang, EverEve, and 23andMe. In the next year, Mercury Mosaics will take its next leap, a second manufacturing center in Wadena, a town of about 5,000, a little over three hours away from the Twin Cities, and a third location is already being planned. This fall, Mercury Mosaics was honored by Twin Cities Business with a Manufacturing Excellence Award, and this is truly a story that should inspire the makers out there who are thinking bigger. Mercedes, Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. What an honor. I'm such a fan of the show. Well, I'm such a fan of you and your work and your beautiful headquarters. I mean, is it when you every time you walk in, let's just set the scene for people. I wish everybody could could see what Mercury Mosaics looks like. And and they can kind of peek in the window, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they can drop in any time, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. It's... Okay, we'll just say, hey, Mercedes sent us, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you're in the Thorpe building yeah. in Northeast. Mm-hmm. That space was its soaring ceilings and good light. It's very Instagram-friendly, beautiful tile, but, like, you see the whole process. Yeah, I, it was really important for me to have natural light. And this is the way that manufacturing spaces were made at the beginning of the 1900s, very human friendly, really friendly to airflow. But again, I can't stress enough the natural light and the windows mm-hmm. and that height of the ceilings. You know, I'd been collecting images on Pinterest, just dreaming things up. And I think you should never under, uh, underestimate what you're inspired by because this factory is literally factory studio. We're still figuring out what we want to call it, but it's the culmination of a couple of years worth of collections on my vintage industrial manufacturing Pinterest board. Who has one of those? Well, I did. A, right. <laughs> Not a lot of people in the manufacturing space. And it's it's so interesting and it speaks to the way you sort of are um, bridging these two worlds of being an artisan maker, handcrafted goods, but really scaling up to be a, a serious manufacturer. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you believe it? No, I can't. I never (laughs) thought that, you know, my attention would be on jobs and like increasing wages and health care. Like I never... I mean, I was not thinking about these things when I started out. I was only thinking about myself. Well, take us back there. What did you What did you major in? Where, where did you go to school? What What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, when I was little, I actually wanted to be an interior designer or an architect when I grew up. 
Okay. In fact, um, I would say the reason why I cater to those two so much is because I was really uh, frustrated and discouraged by how challenging that education was when I was in school. And I actually ended up quitting. I, I had all the math requirements, but just the perseverance and the way that I operated when I was 19 in college is definitely not anywhere near how I operate now. So I have a lot of respect for the number of years of schooling that these trades actually need to be in school. So Mm -hmm. my backup plan was to be an artist, but actually my journey in school was studying psychology for a good three and a half years. And I found I was taking art courses once a quarter for my sanity. And just a light bulb went off like, hey, you know what? If I'm doing this for my sanity and I love it, why don't I just pursue this? So how did you arrive at ceramic tiles? Ceramic tile, I literally stumbled upon. I I had never really done anything. A little bit in high school. I think everybody does a little something in high school with ceramics, and it was fun. But that's about as far as it went. And in my early 20s, when I was just stumbling upon my neighborhood and um, I was waiting tables, that was my primary way of making a living. And I was a wedding photo journalist, and I was actually hand printing all of my photos that I had taken from my 35 millimeter camera. I was selling those. I was doing acrylic paintings and uh, selling those. Um, definitely not making any money at it. I was selling them very sporadically. And I just stumbled upon a local handmade tile shop, and it just really stopped me in my tracks. Hmm. I'd gotten a little inkling of mosaics. Like my college roommate had put together a mosaic coffee table. So I had just the concept of what a mosaic was at about the age of 21. Mm-hmm. That is when I discovered, like, what is this mosaic thing? Yeah. And and what do you think, if you think back on it now, I mean, what was it that you think spoke to you about that particular medium? I think for me... Honestly, early on, it had there was so much to it. I love coloring. I love composition. I love working with my hands. It was, it was very tactile. It touched upon architecture and design. So it kind of encompassed everything all in one, which would grab my attention because I kind of always have a whole multidimensional universe going on in my world. So it wasn't just one thing. There were several things about it that would keep me interested. Mm-hmm. So did you take classes? Did you teach yourself? Was there a YouTube video back then? So I worked for this mom and pop for a few years. In fact, when they first hired me, they didn't have wages to pay me with. And at the time, I was really cool with being paid in tile. So that was a positive for me, just based on what class credits cost at a university and what art materials cost. So it was already a positive for me to be paid in tile. And I felt, you know, I was rich at the time. I was waiting tables. I had like three roommates. So it wasn't really expensive for me to live. Uh So I had the time to learn the trade. In fact, some of the most successful trades in the world are by apprenticeship in Spain, making wine, you know, hundreds and thousands of years of this trade being really successful. So really that's how I learned is by an apprenticeship. And I think you know, for me at the time, there were a lot of things that I was up to that weren't necessarily the best habits in life at that time. So just looking back at me as an employee, like the only employee in the shop making suggestions, I probably wouldn't have taken me very seriously either. Uh But I think after a while of that, it was just it was time to just 
cut me loose and like, why don't you make some of these bright ideas of yours happen? So I had to be my first sale to myself is just selling myself that I could actually do this thing. Wow. Okay. So after you sold yourself, how did you sell other people? Yeah. So, I mean, I started really small locally. I was focusing on home accessories. So think mosaic mirror surrounds. Think light switch covers. Decorative light Mm. switch ceramic covers was really like my bread and butter. And where would you sell them? I would sell them to places like The Afternoon, um, which was a gift store. store. Gift stores, yep. Go home and um, Patina and Be Below had a little, you know, spin with me. Not a lot of repurchasers there, but like just really smaller batch uh, local consignment shops would get these things. And from did me. you go knock on those doors and say, "Hey, I make these things. Do you want to sell them in your store?" Yes. Okay. And and at the time, now I feel I can really liberally give samples away and do a really exceptional job at it. But at that time, it was really painful to leave samples because you only might have five samples. Oh, sure. And to leave one behind, you have to be very mindful about who you're giving that sample to because you've only got five and so you the stakes are high. So this was what like the early 2000s yeah. when you're doing this? This was 2002. Okay did you already have the name were you incorporated under Mercury Mosaics? Absolutely not. Okay. I was calling myself Mosaics by Mercedes. Okay. And I was a sole proprietor. So I wouldn't later incorporate until 2009. Wow. Yep. That's when you started using Mercury? I started using Mercury Mosaics in 2005, so it was simply a name change while I was operating as a sole proprietor. Okay. And then I incorporated in 2009. So really, that's not that long ago. It isn't. That's mm-hmm. crazy. I know. Um, and, and why the name change? Why did you want to move away from using your own name? I didn't want the name of my company to imply it was just one person Mm. making mosaics. And I went to this national mosaic conference. Did you realize that there is such a thing? (laughs) I did not know this. And I found that a lot of people in business doing mosaics was like mosaics by Kathy, mosaics by Anne. So I just suddenly had a wake up call like, oh, man, you know, this isn't very distinct from that. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it kind of connotes this like crafty thing. Like I'm going to find this at an art fair versus I'm going to go into a real shop and order tile for my kitchen. Yeah, that's right. And I I think, not I think, I know at that time people really looked at, including my husband, mosaics as being this thing, this kind of tchotchke, like breaking up and randomizing pieces and being really kitsch. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of my other missions at the time was to just come up with just a new way mosaics can be expressed to feel more contemporary, just a higher elevation of how they play out aesthetically. So you're you're selling to stores, having some, are you making any money at this point? I'm totally not making any money on my mosaics at the time. Thank goodness I was waitressing and I was still riding a little bit on leftover student loans. Like, wow. don't recommend doing that, but that is how I was doing it. So what was the first breakthrough? When did you have an indication that you could actually make money on mosaics? I feel like the first breakthrough was when I found this website that wanted to sell my light switch covers online. It was and still is the world's largest switch plate website. 
I still have this. Another like, thing I didn't know existed. Yeah. And it, I send people there all the time because when you put up great tile on a backsplash or any project, you don't want to just slap a plastic white light switch cover on it. Mm. I, I retired doing the light switch plate covers in 2010, but I definitely will bring them back to life. I definitely will. I'm not quite ready for it. But it really hit me when the world's largest switch plate website was just gaga about my light switch covers and put them as one of their top 12 collections. Huh. Yeah. And so you started getting some traction? I started definitely getting some traction. It was like clockwork every Monday that email purchase order would roll in and it was not something I was totally prepared for. So that was a ride right there. So how quickly did you need to get help? There's only so many of these you can make yourself in a day or a week, right? Right. It depends. Like how many can you make in a day if you get eight hours of sleep? How many can you make in a day if you get three hours of sleep? And let me tell you, when I was making decisions in my early 20s, I was really not taking into account my personal health. Mm -hmm. It was more, what could I I get done. It was very hard for me to delegate what I was doing to others or to just write simple how to's. Like, we're still going through that in my company now. Like, the best thing you can do is to start cataloging how you do things and mm. to believe not only can somebody help you, but if someone is fully focused on a position, whereas you have like 19 hats, inevitably. They can learn what you do, and they'll be able to make make and improve the area so much more by focusing on it than by being spread around too thin. That's such good advice and probably not the thing you're thinking about when you're just trying to, like, not pay rent. Yep. But if you're focused on growing, something you should do probably early on. Absolutely. Yeah, and allowing for mistakes to happen, like, just because— some big thing blows up, not just quitting. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, great. Everybody come to the table. What worked? What didn't work? Let's drop out the things that didn't work. Let's reinforce what worked and let's build this together. Right. Um, So when did you hire? I hired about five years into it. Wow. And that whole time, were you still using that little kiln by your bed in the little apartment? Or (laughs) where were you working? I got my first commercial studio. Don't quote me, but I think just like a few years into it. And it was 1,100 square feet. And I opted to have it be two stories. I had this thing like, I'm not going to need a gym membership because I'm going to be going up and down stairs for my kilns. (laughs) But I really didn't want to be working right next to them and have them like permeating the whole space. It's a little, when you have that little of space, it's harder to contain that heat and the Mm -hmm. heat really can't go anywhere because I didn't have any exterior windows in my first commercial space. Mm -hmm. They were more skylights. Got it. So, so you gradually start getting enough business to, that you can quit waitressing? Yeah, I, slowly weaned from having three waitressing positions to two to then one. But then once I lost the last one, I would sprinkle in other work just uh, on the ebb and flow of cash flow. So I sprinkled in actually being a cashier at Creative Kid Stuff and then doing some nighttime commercial painting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you need to or yes. were you just, okay, oh, it wasn't just that you were nervous. No, about, okay. I needed to. Yeah. <laughs> but are you, were you thinking at that point, I'm going to, this is going to grow into a 
big company and I'm going to hire dozens of people. And were you thinking about all of that? What Did you have a business plan? I didn't have a business plan, but it doesn't mean that I wasn't thinking about it. And I, I'm still guilty of this to this day. Like I can look three years out and I'm going to be taking a, a thing called CEO Next to help me with five-year planning. But really, it's been successful to because plans change. And I feel like I'm pretty good at doing broad brushstrokes into the future. And I can really, really, really plan like the next three months. And I can moderately plan six months out and a year out. But it changes so much. Mm-hmm. You know, things really change a lot. So it... Well, and I'm also curious, how, were you thinking when you were doing the the light switch covers about all the other applications? Were you thinking that you would one day make tables for room and board? I mean, did that enter your mind? No, it, it didn't enter my mind. It, it was interesting, like five years into my company, I did... Uh, reach out to quote unquote pitch room and board and really looking back at it, I totally didn't pitch them at all. But at the time, I thought I was. <laughs> what did you do? I I had gotten hired. Um, so one of their employees actually. That's how it all started. So I'll tell any creative out there never to poo poo a twenty dollar sale because all of this room and board started by one twenty dollar retail transaction at a tabletop show. But it was about having a relationship and doing great work for someone that had me be thought of years later for another project, which then my stuff got put in front of the right people. And they didn't have anything in mind. They had just been aware of Mercury Mosaics over the year, and they were just drawn to wanting to do some work with us. Hmm. So it was kind of neat because the room and board um, table line was truly a collaboration where I got to have input. It wasn't just like a big corporate giant coming over. No, it was like this really approachable guy with glasses and a flannel and, you know, we're working on a piece of paper with a pencil. It wasn't some corporate thing. But this was later. This, this was, was just later. in the last few years. This was in the last few okay. years. Yeah, all right, yeah, all right. Yeah. So, so back when you're, you know, doing your waitressing jobs and almost doing this business on the side, what what was, if I had asked you then, like, what is this? Are you, Is this a business? Is this a hobby? What would you have said? Well, when I was waitressing, I was still carrying around this like this binder with just a mash of my work in it. So I would also have in there these just randomly printed black and white photos of collaborations with fashion designers where we go into industrial spaces and take photos. I have that. I've got mosaic mirrors. And then I've got really bad Polaroids of acrylic paintings I had done. So I'm still this is still kind of in an assortment of things that I'm doing that I'm just, if there's time, speaking to my clientele at these restaurants about okay. what I'm going to do. Oh, literally, you're waiting tables and you're pitching it, your... Oh, yeah. Actually, <laughs> some of my clients patrons? are from these restaurants. You <laughs> never underestimate. I think I'm just like a serial networker and I've been accused of like pitching things so much, but I don't even think I try to pitch things. Like if I really like a lotion, I'm going to tell people about it. But some people are like, you're selling this lotion. I'm like, no, I'm just, I just want just I'm sharing. A, an inevitable resource yeah. about everything. And your restaurant managers, they never said, could you please stop soliciting the guests with no, your because tiles? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't unnatural. Like I wasn't like, hi, okay, great. Your order's in. So let me tell you about, <laughs> no, it was at places where you're building a relationship where you have regulars and they genuinely ask you how you're doing, you know, like, mm-hmm. 
and it was mainly one place where I waited tables, and they're still around, and they're amazing uh, cuzzies. Mm-hmm. And out of all the places that I waited tables, I did the best there because the industry likes to go there. And the industry, they are the best tippers. They, I mean, you go out with them. It's a lot of camaraderie. So it was um, folks in the industry. And then it was also architects and designers. Just a lot of them around Hmm. that area were frequenting our dive. And frankly, we had at that time, like the best food around there, like just the best environment and I really what I took away from that job is when you take great care of people you know there's you open so many doors but you're not taking care of them to open doors but Mm -hmm. because you're taking great care of them the doors are opening sure so I've taken that into my business I mean to this day I just take great care of people whether you need a half square feet of tile or you're going to give me 14 of your stores you didn't have a lot of like formal business training did you know how to write a business plan did did you know what steps to take to turn this from craft into you know a, a company i've still never written a formal business plan but my very first business loan was based on kind of more of this micro planning um it's called an admin scale and it it's a smaller fraction of that, if you will. And it takes into account different metrics that measure the health and performance of the business, which I still track to this day. In the beginning, it was five that I was tracking. And now there's like 55. And they're not all just me that I track, but different areas of the company as you've grown a position, then how is that position kind of measured? And the best way to describe it is like how Michael Jordan trains to become a better basketball player is just like a scoreboard that you can use to measure the business's performance. Mm -hmm. You can take your emotions out of it and make sane decisions. But when did you do that? How early on? Really from the start. So three years into it, I started doing that. And it was, you know, in the third year, I was like, my biggest push was like, how do I sell $1,000 worth of tile-related products a week? Like, that was like this big thing, you know, and then soon it would be how, okay, how do I sell $10,000? How do we get over the hurdle of selling and delivering? Uh It's one thing to sell. It's another thing to deliver. Hmm. So then having that delivery capacity, I think for anyone that's manufacturing, that's always like the ebb and flow. Like you're prepared to sell a lot, but then, oh, now lead times, or do you have all the materials organized and all the labor organized? It's, you know, you're constantly plate juggling, but it's it's never more complex than how it was in the beginning. It's just a different scale is the hmm. best way that I describe it because otherwise it can get way too complicated. And there's a lot of people that are probably rolling their eyes at me. Oh my gosh, she's never done a business plan. I've been up every year and we've gradually built things up every year. I've never laid anybody off. You have 30 employees. 33. 33. Yep. Okay. And I'm hiring another six by the end of March. And those are going to be focused in the sales area to back us up on. So our bottleneck now is in sales. It's not in delivery. But the bottleneck shifts. Yeah. It really does. At what point did you start making custom tiles because a big part of your business is like custom orders right i'm i'm doing a kitchen i come to you i pick out the color and the shape and you guys do a backsplash for me or is that not the biggest part of the business 
you know, it's still like a 50-50 split. So we feel lucky and it's super easy when somebody simply needs 55 square feet of one tile in Mm -hmm. one color. And then there's another side of our business where they saw something on Pinterest, they love it, but they need to adapt it to their wall and they're going to be, you know, adjusting the colors. So that for us is a medium to easy customization, whereas for some companies that is just like full-blown custom. Whereas we've done, you know, a project over in Amazon's headquarters where they needed like custom lettering and our small one inch by one inch tile where we don't even really advertise that we make it because it's so intricate and time consuming and they needed different like graphic elements to it where we'll never make it again. Hmm. So we do and we do everything in between. But there's like easy, medium and very intense custom that we do. How did Amazon find you? Amazon found us, I'm going to credit Google, so architects doing research and finding us. And actually, oddly enough, there is a graphic designer out there with this whole hashtag Fosaics where he's graphically designing a mosaic with someone's feet standing on it like like it's on the ground. It's a 20 to 24-hour project, and it's not even real tile. Well... People love that, and it's actually inspiring people to get lettering and tile. So then they do reverse Google image searches to see who on earth out there does lettering and tile. And unless you want, like, kind of more pixelated plug-and-play um, from, like, a machine-made tile, but we're one of the rare few that's going to actually cut out and make it feel like this graphic. Is that right? So, I mean, it's not you don't have a lot of competition, We don't have a lot of competition, and I chose this really hard, agonizing lane in tile because there's so many great tile companies out there. And I didn't. That are just selling standard tile. That are selling standard tile, or, you know, frankly, my focus on Moroccan fish scales in 2015, like people really caught on to it in 2018. And now, like, everybody is doing Moroccan fish scales. They're using what we call it. Whereas, like, back in 2015 and before then, people had all these odd names for them. So they're. They're really seeing what we're doing, but that's so those areas can get saturated. And so we're always working on so what is our what is our next thing? And we're really interested in patterns and just how simple shapes pull together with different patterns and color. But I think it gets really noisy if you really worry about what everyone is doing because we're all essentially influencing each other. So hmm. for us too, uh, a big thing that has me decide where I want to go is I listen to my customers. Customers. That's it's the number one thing. Like I don't just start on something because I have this like whim that I wake up to. But if we've been <clears throat> getting a considerable amount of requests for it and mm-hmm. it just won't shut off, like I just really need to sit down and look at the pros and the cons and how we can do it, but in our way. Sure. From from the outside, and maybe I'm totally wrong, and you can tell me that I am. Um, it seems like if you were just if you just picked a bunch of different tiles that you were going to produce and then sell them online or through stores, that it would be easier to do more and bigger and, and easier than what you do than these custom <laughs> projects, that is right? Totally true. <laughs> it's completely true. We could just be a big old volume factory and we just sell simple stuff and we say no to all the crazy requests. But that did not appeal to you. 
That didn't appeal to me. It, but obviously, there is money to be made in the intricate. I mean, when you're working for Amazon, they can pay for some tiles. Yeah, they really can. And they want to. They can. Didn't you do? Haven't you done some Lululemon storefronts too? We've done over 120 Lululemons across the globe. That's amazing. And that's just stores. So yeah. within a store, there might be eight projects. Yeah, it's it it's really wild. Or we'll do entire grocery stores. Like we've done a couple of the Lunds in town where they did use one shape and one color. Mm-hmm. So we do have projects like that. We have hotels that use us, the Hiltons, the Radisons. Huh. So yeah. architects and designers are your friend. Definitely. Because they're the ones who are saying this is going to look nice if it's done in tile. Certainly. Then there's the consumers. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like the the relationship you have. Right. That yeah. where they're saying, can you make a table that we are going to sell in our stores? Yeah. I mean, and that's just one one. Uh, person right now or one do you anticipate that becoming i mean where where do you see the most growth potential well gosh so with tabletops that's an interesting one so even before room and board this is sort of a random thing that we service but we actually make custom mosaic tabletops for pf chang's (laughs) in the middle east (laughs) in the middle east in the middle east not in the midwest not in the midwest (laughs) no how did that happen oman dubai kuwait qatar Do P.F. Chang's look... First of all, I didn't know they were there. Yeah, they're, Second of all, do yeah, P.F. Chang's look very different in the Middle East than Holy they do... smokes. They're like stunning palaces. You can, You're kidding. No, it's so But do they wild. have the lettuce wraps? That's really the question. I mean, I would assume. I mean, that's definitely... I have a lot of things on my list to go and just travel the world. I could spend the rest of my life traveling to go see our work. That's one thing that really fascinates me is where our tile ends up. Like... I would vacation and spend time in many of these places or just go live in these cities where we've become part of placemaking. Like I I could dedicate the rest of my career to cataloging it, which I would love to actually. Yeah, I I feel I'll ever be bored. I think for the next contracts, you should require that you pay a site visit, especially if it's in a warm, exotic location. Yeah, warm, exotic location, all the fancy coffee houses and all of these like James Beard restaurants. And like, yeah, I can't. You're the boss. Can't you make that happen? (laughs) I know. I'm like, wow, my boss is so strict. She always works me so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so speaking of that, what does your work look like today? You are no longer making tiles. Right. I phased out of making tile in 2010, which is really wild. So it's almost been a decade. And I phased out of um, doing things with our accounting a few years ago. And I, phased... I bet that was an easier thing to give up. Wasn't that it? was an easier thing to give up. I actually took it back on like five years ago. And it was very important for me, though, to dig into it and be a part of basically the strengthening of it. And just like anything, coming up with different processes so someone can come into the seat and stabilize it with what you were doing and then improve it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I talk about a lot about getting out of my own way. So then, you know, that was something that I got out of the way on a few years ago. And then the next thing to get out of the way is in our actual day-to-day sales. I'm very much involved with that. I'm involved getting out of the way of it. No, no. why are you so involved in sales? Do you enjoy that part? Always. I've always. um, Well, I would say primarily because so in the world of tile, in the world of selling it, it's changed so much. I would say I'm on my seventh 
business model in this realm. And so just to kind of give you a snapshot, it's obviously started by selling through gift stores Mm -hmm. and consignment stores, wholesale um, in that realm, and then selling at markets. Mm -hmm. Then it morphed into uh, selling through showrooms and distributors across the U.S., and that was primarily still focusing on residential, and then getting into selling commercial in about 2010, and then starting to work with brands like Whole Foods and Lululemons and anyone that Shea was sending our way, and then those projects getting photographed and getting press, really growing into other related business. And, and then Shea designs restaurant spaces yes. and stores. So yeah. another important kind of partner for you. A huge important partner. And that all just started by gifting one uh, one project. It wasn't through going through the traditional lunch and learns because they just kind of yawned like all other architect firms where I, you know, who's this chick bringing in these tiles? Like I never really got anything out of that. It was yeah. when I approached them to give away some tile to one of their clients Lynn Gordon, she was putting out her first People's Organic coffee and wine bar at Galleria. Yeah. And I just needed some photos to show that I could do commercial work. I had done commercial work, but I was shipping it out of state, so I didn't have any photos. And I needed photos. So I said, hey, I'd love to give away 40 square feet of tile, and I want it to be in a more prominent location because I need some great photos. Can you think of anyone that would benefit from this gift. Because I'm thinking, if 40 square feet of tile was a lot for me at the time, and I didn't want to get in over my head. What, what is it? Give me a rough ballpark of what that would cost. Well, so they chose the most expensive tile. Of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> so she chose my bubbles, which are $136 a square foot. So we're talking, you know, after tax, like around a $6,000 project. Mm-hmm. And if anyone checks my math on this podcast, I'm not doing this with a calculator. <laughs> so we're talking rough numbers. But so it turned out she actually needed double that amount. And they're still up at the Galleria. But Mm -hmm. what that did was it really helped me form a relationship with one of the senior architects there who's since moved on. But I made relationships with those in the office, like a few really key players. They've since moved on, still have those relationships. And that's really the thing is you don't you don't have a relationship with a brand or a company, you have a relationship with people. Mm -hmm. And then again, we're going back into taking care of people and that hospitality and what I learned in waitressing. So I wasn't taking care of them. So they'd give me more work. But of course, I want more work. But I'm always very focused on taking great care of them and making it so I'm not just, it's not just a transaction. I'm not just taking an order. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've really built my sales team around. But I've been involved with it as long as I have, because then I went, you know, from weaning out of the whole like showrooms and distributors to then we're really focusing on selling it direct. And then I'm having commission-based salespeople and then getting in all the drama of that, of like this person's commission and that person's commission. And I'm still working just as many hours. I'm just making a few other people do really well, but I'm still not seeing any light at the end of the tunnel. Like, when am I going to phase out of this? Hmm. And then it just really, it really hit me. You know, I'm going into a lot of newer restaurants that are putting things on their checks about like um, the fees being distributed to all the staff or like Bite Squad. My tip doesn't just go to the driver now. Mm -hmm. And I just decided in September of 2018, that's it. I'm going to start this model over. I'm not afraid to start things over. 
So I said, I'm going to start this over. We're going to eliminate commission-based sales. It helped that I was out of the country in Italy making this decision. <laughs> yeah, I was at the world's s- largest tile trade show. Okay. Which was amazing. And, and did this catch your staff completely off guard? You know, actually, I feel like my staff is pretty supportive. So, it, you know, so those that were making commission, you know, they decided, like, of course, they've got to they've got to support themselves. So, of course. So they left? Yeah. So square one. But what's kind of neat about square one and this model is we've grown by 25 percent this year. So this. And why is that? Why did taking commission away help you grow sales? Because I formed a team working together versus this like opponent, like internal opponents, if oh. you will. I also this year implemented healthcare. So immediately by taking that away, I was able to immediately activate healthcare. Hmm. I cover, so I had the option to cover 50 or 75%. We're not there to cover 100%. So I opted for the highest percentage that I could cover. Mm-hmm. And now it's just simply a matter of adding on more salespeople in this model to actually be able to take better care of the whole company than another outdated model of a sales commission model. And I was inspired by room and board. They don't have commission-based sales. So I was very interested in emulating what they have because I noticed like their average employee has been there, like a newer employee is like 10 to 15 years. Hmm. So it's like there's definitely something something. to this like I want to focus on strengthening the positions within my company I don't want to quote unquote just have entry-level positions but when you start doing the math for 30 people and increasing wages like you have to do it on a gradient so that's why I've been pretty involved because I literally just found the sales model that's going to work for us after all this time do you that's amazing do you take as much satisfaction is it does it um, fuel you to work on sales and have victories there as much as it did to make a beautiful tile it's very different I think right now my favorite thing that I spend the least amount of time that I want to spend more time on is working on these relationships with influencers, but in a very different way. Um, It's essentially, it's product placement, but what it is, is it's something where there aren't all these rules all over it, or we're quote unquote, not designing something for the end customer, but we're doing something that we want to experiment with. Like a great example is we just recently did something for Pinewood. It's a new event center that opened up in Cambridge, Minnesota, and I'm really interested in putting tile in places that you wouldn't normally expect it. So it's literally on this expansive wall when you walk in and it's just all these beautiful shades of greens. I think green is a timeless color. I'm not into talking about trends when it comes to tile because I want it to be put up and I want it to be there forever. Mm -hmm. And we sprinkled in all of these great planters, but we made the tile mural so tall that when you're standing in front of it, you can't tell where it ends. So I wanted it to just be this epic entry area. Sounds cool. But there's not any restraints of like what you can and can't do when you're working on tile in this capacity. And then you're creating content intentionally, like you're creating what you want to put out there. And so that is... So did you give that away? Because you- I give I gave it away, so they just covered the sales and use tax. So we cover, you know, collected fourteen hundred for that good, 
that wow. good collection box. Oh. Yeah, it was just $1,400 alone for the tax on it. Yeah, so I gave it away because I wanted to inspire others to do that. And do you find that that works? I mean, it works with People's Organic. You got other projects based on people seeing that? Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's now become a part of my business where I do something A, to try something out that's a little more outside of the box. B, to be connected with another entrepreneur that I really want to empower. And C, it keeps me and my chops in the game and working on something that has to be solved instead of working on like client requests or organizing how these people are going to be managed in our sales software or these accounting mm-hmm. type things. It, so it it's keeps a little more cre- creative. And and for that project that you were just mentioning, did you decide how it was going to look? I mean, were you involved with the design, not just arranging that you were your company was going to do this installation? Yeah. And that's why, I mean, some people either are going to love or hate me. That's why these things take a long time because now I'm super involved with it. And the other person is very involved with it, too, because they have to be like over the moon excited about it. Otherwise, it's just a product placement and you can't just have that. Is there any job at Mercury Mosaics currently that you couldn't do? Yes. What? Well... I haven't made tile since 2010, and it's completely been revolutionized. So I would have to learn from scratch. Really, I feel confident that I could cut out bubbles and that I could make Moroccan fish scales, which I gave a really small shot when we were filming something last summer. But I had way too much clay waste. You know, I'm You're like kidding. No, I'm rusty. I'd feel great about um, glazing and loading kilns. Layout on custom, I would feel pretty rusty at a big, a really large project. Smaller projects, I, you know, worked on a bit of that new mural that's in my space. Mm -hmm. And I had this like big idea that I was going to just chip away at it throughout the summer, uh, which totally didn't happen. (laughs) I did one of the letters and I worked on the word together and then I did the handles of the tile nipper. But it worked out way better that we had a collective of people working on it but mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like I'll just buzz that in the background and like there is no back there's not like spare time right right is that a strange feeling though that <laughs> yes. the very product that your company makes and that you that inspired you to start it you're sort of out of that game they've innovated it they've innovated <laughs> me out of it like I feel I could make our Minnesota magnets and they would be sell you know sell worthy right. you know my staff is super nice to me Joel's like Mercedes no you're really good at this still and I'm like Joel I am so rusty you're gonna lap me times 10. How do you make sure that your staff stays current or innovative do you do you do you just rely on them or do you send them to to clinics or what what do you do? Well, actually, so that's a weak point that we have. So those that have gotten any continuing education, they have actually proposed it and they've sought something out. We have a a person that's going to be doing some training on actual glaze mixing. Uh, We had somebody that learned AutoCAD. Uh, We have someone that wants to go to some workshops on just change management. So it's been a very organic Uh, definitely an area where we can improve. So with us too, internally, just our innovation also comes from doing what our custom work is and just realizing when there's a better way to do something and taking ourselves seriously and like updating our how-tos so that 
the next generation coming into that role or if someone is shifting from one role to the other, we'll actually evaluate all the processes in that area to make it more simple for the next person to come in, which is exactly what I'm doing in sales, which is exactly what they're doing in the shipping area. So we're we work as a team on that. And I have to be very partially involved or not involved in some of the areas because I can't I can't hand my hands in everything. So that's where trust comes into play. Yeah. How how do you decide that it's time to to pull back or to just let the team go with it? Do do you have mentors or advisors that you're talking to? Are you thinking about that really in terms of like the numbers and strategy or is it just a gut? How, how do you know? So these again these scoreboards um and so even though we've got like over 60 things that we're keeping track of, these core five, like if I can see that our revenues are down, uh, which is comes from sales invoice or cash coming in the door or our goods going out the door, I can just easily make decisions based on that. Like uh, a year and a half ago, even though I absolutely love Instagram and it's super fun to engage with people on there, you know, I'd said to my team, okay, our company is in trouble if I am answering Instagram messages or whatever. Like, Directly. Just slap my hand. I, I got to get up. That. I you, was. You were running yeah. the Mercury Mosaic. No, Instagram I wasn't account. running it. Like, definitely, I cannot take credit for how gorgeous that looks. And I was, you know, so my team is working during the day, right? And there might be, like, super emergency comments. There's not any emergency comments on Instagram. But that's <laughs> where I was emergency. at. It's where we're all at, right? right? Like, you could actually have somebody on Instagram that needs to talk to you about a very important project, but people (laughs) do not engage with a company on their social media about a really important hospitality project. Like definitely utilize email or a phone, Mm -hmm. but that's just where we're at today sometimes. So it, you have to allow those chips to fall and for your team to support those chips getting into the right pot. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you can't be all over the place. You can't be monitoring our chat because yeah. some bid fell through the cracks. Don't chat with a company to get a really important bid on a project. But that's right. I mean, it happens sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> um, speaking of being all over the place, you are literally going to another place. You've decided to expand and you could have seen if there was more space in your building or down the street, but instead you decide to go three hours away. What the heck? I know. I totally blame it on my streetwise mini MBA through the Small Business Administration, that project. That's where it came from. I did not dream it up out of my imagination, but it came out of taking that class and I wrote up my first project and my instructor totally failed me on it. And I was like, you're not thinking big enough. I can already tell you're at work on part of this project. Are you? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Why why did you take that (laughs) class or pursue the mini MBA in the first place? I'm always in a class. You should always know that I'm always doing something uh, to learn. And my banker suggested it to me. Okay. And honestly, the word streetwise really struck me. I was like, yeah. I like I like yeah. that as opposed to like super formal uh-huh. four year to eight year education. I was like streetwise is totally something that speaks to me. What is this? So you were were you thinking you're going to need to expand? No, I mean, was that no? Okay. No. What what I was mean, the impetus? We, 
I always have the goal to expand, but I wasn't thinking, hello, I would like to pop my tile into another facility <laughs> and have a second location. Like that was things that our clients do. Like we watch our clients go through these carnivals. Like yeah. we're not like, there's no way. So um, out of it, though, I basically, I had the realization that of every space I occupy, we outgrow it before the lease is up. Hmm. And that was part of why I went from 5,000 to 15,000 square feet. Like I was strongly advised to only take 10,000 square feet of the space. Mm -hmm. And I strongly went with this one. I was like, based on our history and performance, it's going to be more expensive later if I don't take on all 15,000 square feet because that'll buy me more time. That was hmm. really what I was thinking with. It was definitely risky, but I had to, then I just reverse engineered what our sales numbers needed to be. So that's Another beauty of like keeping it simple is being able to work backward and forward from your numbers. And this was like our first real business loans to set up the space we're in now. And our banker congratulated us for performing on our projections. And that was like the really the first intensive time that I had worked out projections to that scope. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, well, what are you mean? Why are you congratulating me? Wasn't that the whole point of this exercise for you to give us a yeah, right. large sum of money and us Probably doesn't to happen. plan what we're doing and live and die by it? So that felt really good. And, and then it made me even more passionate about wanting to help other entrepreneurs that there's professionals out there that expect people not to come through on that. I was, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, let's just put that away for a second. But wow, that's your mentality that people don't back that up. Like we have to be part of helping other people like succeed yeah, with this. Yeah, yeah. This is like our local community here. So you don't need more space right now, but that's you right. anticipate that you will in the not too distant future. It's true. Yes. What is the advantage? Is there an advantage to going far away to a small town? Yes, there is. And we are to the point where we're flirting with needing that space. So that's the beauty of this. And projects like this take time. They You just do not slam them in place and fast track them. I have seen it both ways. And I like the way that we're working on the paper part um, quite a bit and planning. And uh, we certainly are looking space-wise that we do need this space. And it's kind of nice because now my team is like, hey, when are we going to get that space? Mm -hmm. Like, we need it now. Don't You can see it. I'm like, yeah, we can see it. They thought I was crazy two years ago, but now they really see it. But the advantage to moving outside of the city, number one, um, for what I pay for rent where I'm at, most people would think I'm crazy. But the space that we're in and how it's set up and all the amenities and location, but really like how human friendly it is, mm -hmm. that was very, very important to me. Mm -hmm. And it's just absolutely stunning. So one of the advantages is we can do this without losing our shirts. It's mm. going to be it's much cheaper. more affordable. Yep. And I want to do my first additional space with something that doesn't knock the wind out of us. Sure. Um, I'm really intending to continue to do this with the cash flow of our sales ultimately as what carries it versus like throwing in all these like investor money and this yeah. and that. Like I want wow. that to be That's supported amazing. by that. Also, you benefit from a lot of support from the small town, which is excited at the idea that you're creating some new jobs. Yes. Yeah. And so... That alone and experiencing the partnership with the city of Wadena and their help to just put the pieces together. And again, like this paper side of things is 
super time consuming. So them were and we have an agent on our side where that's all he does is he works with smaller communities to basically work with businesses that are like us that have reached a point where they're going to need to expand in some capacity. So to do it in a way that's uh, really approachable finance wise, like Johnny Pops Mm -hmm. uh, worked with the same agent that we have. Mm. And so, you know, there's only so many popsicles that they can make in their facilities. So they had to expand in that way. And there's another by all means story. People mm -hmm. can look up that one as well. Oh, good. Okay. Um, So you are already thinking about the the next location. You are going to have to manage having employees that are not, you know, down the street from you. What are you most excited about? What are you most nervous about? Well, I'm most excited about having this as an ability to create more opportunity for my team within. So at the end of the day, it's really hard to create new opportunities and growing opportunities for your team if you are limited to what you can produce. Mm. Okay. So there'll always be, there there won't be as many opportunities if we can't do this. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that. What I have no idea about and no experience is what is it like to run a business with a separate manufacturing facility? I had a tiny little taste of it. So in between our last space and this space, we had to allow our production team to take over where our offices were. And we worked temporarily out of Coco, which mm-hmm. they're now Fueled Collective. So we did that for nine months. So we were out of like day to day with our production team for nine months. And I'd be lying to you if I told you it was like super 100 percent smooth. Mm -hmm. So I have a flavor of what that was like, but it feels like apples to oranges because where we were at at a company as a company at that time, which was three and a half years ago to now is very like we're in such a a different place. And we have a lot of a lot of people who have opted to increase their responsibilities, which has always been a barrier for me mm-hmm. and Mercury Mosaics in the past, whereas now I have the opposite problem now where there's more people that want to take on more responsibility. So that's a motivation for me to grow the company and take on more because you can then mm-hmm. let go of more. But those that have moved up, they can let go more. So I'm, now I'm on this like wave of like working with my staff and I'm, it feels so fun to see how hesitant they are to delegate things yeah. and how they want it done a certain way. But that to me is like, I couldn't ask for a better thing because that's how much they care. Right. Is and, it is it stressful to know that you are pretty directly responsible for the livelihoods of all of these people? I I used to be really stressed by it when our finances were in total disarray. And that chapter ended when I was able to move into this facility to deliver enough tile to support the people I had. Because as you recall, I said I've never laid anyone off. But Mm -hmm. before we moved for that year and a half leading up, I should have laid off. But I didn't. I accumulated debt. And so if you were- No loan. You never went out seeking uh, Not to handle that stuff. Okay. Um, So the loans that I sought were to support this space that we're in. So there's all this time in between. So- We've made good on anything that we've owed, but there were times where we were in arrears on things. And that time, at that time, I was definitely stressed. Mm-hmm. But now I'm not stressed, but more I'm motivated and I am educated on what it takes now. Like I understand what it takes to sustain this 
And I think the main times I'll get stressed is if I'm a little light on sleep or if I skip eating. Mm. But I can have a pretty level head and tackle things. Um, one of my, so we just hired a PR firm a few months ago and she has a great perspective and I love her. She's like, we're not doctors. Like, we're not responsible for someone's life. You know, right. we're not operating on them. So just but tile is pretty important. That, tile is very important. <laughs> so it's, you know, I've always been a hard worker yeah. and I want to instill that in my staff. And clearly I have. So it's more like about me, not me being nervous, but helping educate my team. So we're all on the same page. And so right. that's what this next year will be about is getting us all on the same page because there's still work to be done there. And I could be better about sharing what on earth I'm up to. Did you always know in your heart or just instinctively that you were an entrepreneur? Looking back, I think I always have been, but I think until it was this well-branded and marketed thing, um, I didn't realize it. You know, I was selling my Bart Simpson drawings in grade school, and, like, my mom would send me to school with these great drawings on my uh, school lunch bags, and I would trade them, and I used to, to earn extra cash, used to, like, ride in the back of my friend's dad's minivan, and we'd go through people's alleys and take all their recyclables and then we'd go and cash them in and yeah. we'd like, hustling. we were hustling yeah. yeah like so I've always hustled or I figured out a way to get employed at the age of 10 and 12 because mm-hmm. of these dang age barriers in uh, yeah that's <laughs> the employment a mindset market. yeah right. so I've always figured out a way around or like I really wanted to watch pay-per-view SummerSlam and the Survivor Series <laughs> yes I was a professional wrestling fan <gasps> growing up I don't even know how that happened but so we would figure out ways to hustle to earn money so we get the pay-per-view and watch these events it's but good yeah, to have a goal that's I right. on the prize yeah I think you know because my mom didn't give me money for things. She didn't have it to give. So mm-hmm. I always had to figure out a way around it. So I think even though there was like years of my life where I was super bitter that I like grew up in a not so great part of town. And, you know, my mom fed me out of a dumpster when I was like growing up before she stabilized. And hmm. so I think just becoming resourceful and not having anything handed to you and not even like getting praise like I was on the honor roll and I had perfect attendance in school and I didn't really get the praise at home to support that so I just was always motivated to do really well by any means necessary so it's now just in my DNA yeah well it seems to have served you well (laughs) what are you most proud of today with all that you've accomplished and where your company is now and where it's headed I think I'm most proud of that I didn't turn out how everyone said I would. I had a lot of people that advised me to sell my company. I had a number of people tell me that a career like this would never work out and told me about the statistic I'd end up being because I didn't really start out the greatest with my own uh, self-worth and ethics. But I think I'm most proud is that my attention is now no longer on that with myself, but just helping others, helping pull others out of any kind of barriers they might be in. And even like with my own crew, if people want my help to get their art going, like I'm super into it. Like I'm not going to, if they want to 
reduce their hours, like Zach's going to kill me, but like if they (laughs) reduce their hours or if they want to pick my brain or go have coffee, like I want to help them. I want them, you know, it's never easy to start your own thing, but I want that to not be someone's barrier because it's going to take two years of sweat. Like I really want to encourage people to go after their dreams. Yeah. Wow. Well, you certainly have done that. It's such an inspiring story. Mercedes, it's been so fun to, to hear about it and to follow you. And I hope people go visit Mercury Mosaics and check it out. See all the dogs running around. (laughs) That's not a that's not like a fire hazard or anything. No, 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 it's all good. It's all good. good. (laughs) Stick around. We're gonna go back to the classroom next with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Mercedes, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Mercedes is such a a classic case of a maker turned manager and entrepreneur. I think a lot of people want to do that. Not everybody figures it out. Let's go back to the classroom at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Professor David Deeds is the Schultz Professor of Entrepreneurship. Professor Deeds, what did you take from Mercedes' story and how could more makers and artists figure out that transformation into truly business owner and manager? Well, first it's embracing it. You know, as you as you listen to Mercedes talk, she started out with a passion for the art and the craft that she was doing. Mm-hmm. But her passion today is about this business and about managing this business and what we need to do and what the numbers say. So she's really evolved, but keeping the passion, she still clearly loves the core product and what they're doing. But for her, her mindset has evolved from trying to design and lay out and create to creating an organization and expanding and growing that organization. And all the way along, she's picked up and been open and learning to pick up the skills that she needs. Right. And she really had to let go a little bit because, I mean, it was her baby. Those were her tiles. And she doesn't make the product anymore, which is so interesting. Absolutely. Transition has to be made. You you just, if your time is spent actually making and crafting and designing, then it's not spent growing the business. You can't spend a dollar twice. You can't spend an hour twice. Mm -hmm. And as the entrepreneur and the owner and the founder, your time's incredibly valuable. And you can bring it. There are a lot of great artists. There are a lot of great craftspeople out there. And you can find that talent. In fact, that's a pool of talent that is frequently underutilized. It's the person that can make that transition to growing and understanding that this is also a business and this is bring an ability to employ more of these craftspeople, more of these artists and provide them the living that they're looking for. All the while growing a business and making themselves some money, creating wealth and value and bringing their art that they're interested into the marketplace. And if you are that artisan who has hit on something successful, you notice the market need, but you really don't want to do what Mercedes is doing now. You don't mm-hmm. want to do the HR and the management Can you scale a venture as an artist? With a partner, then. You're going to have to find somebody. You can be founder, but if if your passion is going to stay there on the creative side, then you need to be founder and somebody else needs to be CEO, manager, entrepreneur, and you need to bring them in. They're going to need to have 
stake in the company. You're going to need to form a partnership that allows you to continue to do what you want, probably be the face and the brand of the company right. with somebody coming in to offset that. That piece has to be done. It has to be done well. Yep. There's an art to the management side as well. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, David. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend about the show, too. If you want to know more, you can go to tcbmag.com slash byallmeans. I'm Allison Kaplan. On behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Mm-hmm.